So welcome back everyone. Last week, many of you were here and I explored the theme of how to practice a day after election day in the US, recognizing we have people also from um, other countries and as we did last time. Also, I remember last time we had uh, people from France, Canada, New Zealand, as well as the U.S. and from all over the U.S. And we looked at a number of different ways to practice, to bring our sense of inner and outer practice to, to the situation. Uh, since we met last week, uh, there uh, seems to be resolution of the election, but it doesn't seem to be accepted by everyone. So there's still some, um, what's still some uh, turmoil, certainly in the US. And I wanted to <clears throat> focus today, particularly on a theme which I brought up last time as very, very central, both to our inner practice and to the, um, what we might call bringing our practice into the larger social realm. And that is the theme of practicing with our views, our opinions, our narratives. How do we do that individually? How do we do that relationally? And how do we bring that practice into our larger world? And I did explore it uh, some. It was one of the themes I looked at last time, along with uh, a number of other themes. It's also a very, very central area of practice uh, as given by the historical Buddha. In other words, 2,600 years ago, the Buddha was talking a lot about practicing with views. And so what I want to do is to today start to explore this in more depth. And my sense is that I'll be doing this at least in one more session the next time I come back. Uh, and so we can see how this is a very much an individual practice, a relational practice, and a very crucial practice for this time in the U.S. and I think also very much probably in almost all countries. How do we practice particularly with those with different views? How do we bring our mindfulness, our compassion, our empathy into being with those with other views? How do we find common ground? One of the most uh, central issues certainly in the United States in the next years very, very crucial area. How do we avoid the what is a, a strong tendency now simply to each be in our bubbles, so to speak? People use the word bubble to suggest that we may be in our insulated areas where we only hear our own views where we don't really meet with people with, with different views, or we do so minimally. You know, I often hear that happens, especially in 
extended families. And they're, they're dangerous of that. Actually, it's been a danger for a long time. Uh, you know, probably, what, um, 60 years ago, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he spoke about the danger that he was seeing, and he was seeing it especially in the South, of people in their own monologues. He said, we need dialogue, and too often the tendency is to monologue. People staying with their own views, not really shifting. You know, and how do we how do we navigate this whole territory? You know, is there such a thing as reality or facts or evidence? Is there something that can help us navigate uh, different views? We can we can wonder about this. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm trying not to take a particularly partisan approach here. But I can also note uh, that, uh, according to very recent polls, 70% of Republicans believe that the election was not fair, even though there doesn't seem to be evidence for that. But the belief or the view is there. And, uh, and yet also, a, a significantly larger percentage of Republicans than 10 years ago believe now that we need to act on climate change and on racism, right? So can be confusing. What's the place of, of evidence? And I, I was thinking actually of showing a video today that, um, but I, I may do it a future time. There's a, a book that came out called Information Apocalypse. Anyone know that book or that theme? It's, you can look it up. It's uh, as a book. Uh, I think the, the author is Nina Schick. And, uh, the, and the, but there are people researching it. It's basically that the state of technology is such that it's very, very easy to produce apparent valid stories that appear like newspaper stories and videos that uh, are being called increasingly deep fake. The technology is there, so you could take my voice, uh, you could take a recording of me and manipulate my voice and even my image and produce a video of me saying things that are completely different from what I think. And, and that is technologically possible and, again, happening in many, many places. So there are, uh, there are dangers of that. Uh, um, So what I want to do especially today is talk about two areas and then that would lead up to a third area. The, the, the first area is I want to explore the actual teachings of the Buddha on views and how to work with views, how to work with our sense of narratives, opinions, and so forth, and their relationship to experience. So I want to look at his approach there. And then also, secondly, look at how we practice with views. And I want to give you several practices that are probably familiar in many ways to us, ways of practicing with views 
both in terms of our own inner practice and in terms of being with others with different views. And then I think I'll probably a future time, I'll go into more depth on how, on how we can bring this into uh, the larger world. And I actually probably more depth also on that, um, on one of the areas of practice, that is how we practice with those with different, with different views. That's my intention. It's to give some depth and thoroughness and be practically grounded on this question of uh, practicing with views. And I'll come back and I'll give a, a clearer definition of, of what, uh, what I mean and what is meant by, by views, and uh, uh, both traditionally and in a contemporary way. So what are the teachings of the Buddha on views? I want to point to five main texts where he outlines his teachings on views. And, you, and as we'll see, what he's going to point to is the danger of having views which are not grounded in experience. Also, the danger of having views which are more theoretical and don't really matter in terms of our own freedom and liberation. And he's going to point also to the way that views that are held unskillfully typically involve grasping, reactivity, and often lead to different forms of suffering. So I'll go into more depth on all of that, but that is, that is the overview. That... Uh, there are ways of being skillful with views, and there are ways of being very unskillful with views. So, five texts. I'll go through them fairly briefly. The first is the text, and I'll, I'll give the, the reference for some of you who might want to look this up. This is from the Majjhima Nikaya 63, uh, usually abbreviated MN. It's one of the collections, and this is a text called the, uh, talking about the uh, metaphor of the poisoned arrow. And the reference point for this is that in the time of the Buddha, there were a number of what we might call metaphysical questions, which were, we might say, hot topics among the philosophers in various spiritual traditions. And these were questions like, is the cosmos or the world eternal or not? Is it infinite or not? Are the soul and the body the same or are they different? After death, does a Buddha still exist or not exist? or both exist and not exist, or neither exist nor not exist. Those were that last way of phrasing it was actually what was, it's a logical method by the uh, Indian philosophers at that time, where there were four options. Something either is, or it isn't, or it both is and isn't, or it neither is nor isn't. I'm not going to get into that too much, but just it's interesting, you know, that they were, they were well-developed, accounts there. So anyway, that's the background for this. And um, 
we could probably add other questions to that that list. This is sometimes called what the Buddha called the undeclared, or their set of ten uh, metaphysical questions. We probably could add questions in our time, like, are we free, or are we completely conditioned? You know, or in other religious traditions, is there a God, or is there not a God? And the Buddha basically says, none of these questions can be answered, and they're not relevant for liberation. That's what he's going to be saying. So, I'll read from the passage. It's just as if a person were wounded with an arrow, thickly smeared with poison. Friends and companions, kinspeople and relatives would provide this person with a surgeon. And the person would say, I won't have this arrow removed until I know whether the one who wounded me was a warrior, a Brahmin, a merchant, or a worker. I won't have this arrow removed until I know the name and clan name of the person who wounded me. Until I know whether the person was tall, medium, or short. Whether the person was dark, muddy brown, or golden colored. Until I know the home village, town, or city. Until I know whether the bow with which I was wounded was a longbow or a crossbow. You get the point, right? He's going through all of these, and he, he ends up by saying, he, gives, he goes on for a long time giving all these options of who might have uh, shot the arrow, how it was shot, the nature of the arrow, uh, and I won't have this arrow removed until I know whether the shaft with which I was wounded was a common arrow, a curved arrow, a barbed arrow, a calf-toothed arrow, or an oleander arrow. The Buddha concludes, that person would die and all of these details would still remain unknown. Okay, that's his point. So he's, uh, he's basically saying that these abstract metaphysical views are, um, can't be answered, ultimately, and that uh, if you focus on them and don't focus on your immediate predicament, you'll die without freedom or liberation. A second text. Uh, the Buddha is asked by a wandering uh, yogi named Vachagota, is there a self or is there not a self? And interestingly, because some of you know that the Buddha has a teaching called the teaching of not-self, the Buddha refuses to answer. When he's asked, is there a self, he stays silent. When he's asked, is there no self, he stays silent. The wanderer leaves, and uh, Ananda, the Buddha's uh, attendant, says, why didn't you answer him? You know, he might have been thinking, don't you teach uh, not-self? And the Buddha said, basically, whatever answer I would have given to him would have further confused him. And so I stayed silent. And we can actually think that this may indicate a, in a way, a, a, even a deeper teaching than the teaching of not-self, saying that the true way to approach this is not to get fixated on either of the extremes, either of the options, that neither of them is fully true. There's another passage uh, uh, in which the Buddha says to get caught in one of these views is to get caught 
in a thicket of views, a wilderness of views, a contortion of views, a writhing of views, a fetter of views. It is accompanied by suffering, distress, despair, and fever. It does not lead to uh, dispassion, cessation, to calm, direct knowledge, to full awakening, to unbinding from the fetters. So he's basically saying there are two problems with the views. The first is that it, when you get caught in views, it leads to suffering. And secondly, that it doesn't lead to liberation. The fourth text is also well known probably for some of us. This is the text called the, uh, the Raft. And the Buddha likens his teachings to a raft that is helpful for getting across the ocean, we might say, of, um, of dukkha. You know, of, uh, sometimes was translated as suffering, of difficulty, of confusion, of greed, hatred, and delusion. And that he says, once you cross that ocean and you get to the other shore, would you still walk around with the raft on your back? No, you would let go of the raft. He says, my teachings are means to an end. And he's implying that they shouldn't be taken as literally true that they are practically based means to an end. And then the last passage uh, I want to point to, these are, I think, the main passages that really let us know about this very practical approach to views. The last one is uh, probably, again, maybe known to some of us. It's called the Kalama Sutta. And this was a text in which the Buddha visited a people called the Kalamas, and they lived at a crossroads. And I'm thinking this is very similar to people who lived where there are a lot of, a lot of people come through. And they heard uh, teachers uh, from every tradition. And they were noting that the different spiritual teachers often contradicted each other. And so they asked the Buddha, this teacher says this, this other teacher says this, what should I believe? You know, it's confusing. They don't agree with each other. What should we think? And the Buddha said, I'll read from the text, it is proper for you, Kalamas, to, to doubt, to be uncertain. And then he said, what's the basis for going with a certain view? Do not go upon what has been acquired by repeated hearing, nor upon tradition. Can you hear that? He's saying, don't believe something simply because of tradition. Very interesting. Nor upon rumor, nor upon what is in a scripture. Pretty intense, right? What other, you have to, have to think, what other religion says don't believe it because it's a sacred text, right? Pretty, pretty interesting. Nor upon uh, scripture, nor upon surmise, nor upon an axiom, nor upon spacious reasoning, nor upon, nor upon a bias towards the notion that has been pondered over, nor another seeming ability, nor the consideration, this one is our teacher. So he's saying, don't believe something just because the teacher is saying it. Okay, so I don't know how that puts what I'm saying now into consideration, but we'll come back to that. <laughs> so... Uh, they're saying, don't believe it just because this is our teacher, but rather, when you yourselves know, 
these things are bad, these things are blamable, these things are censured by the wise, undertaken and observed, these things lead to harm and ill, abandon them. And he goes on to say, similarly, when you notice that something is helpful, follow it. So another way of saying that, it's really, he's saying, look at your experience closely and ground everything in your own experience. So it's a pragmatic approach that he's taking. Uh, the deeper metaphysical questions don't matter. Ultimately, they can't be answered and don't, don't get caught up with them. You know, and it made me think, I, I, believe, I believe this was from the playwright Bertolt Brecht. He was thinking about, uh, he has, I think, one passage somewhere where he's thinking about God and he says, if I didn't believe in God, how would I live? And, and he would say, well, I'd want to be moral. I'd want to be good to my fellow uh, uh, human beings. I'd want to live well and so forth. And then he says, if I, didn't believe, if I believed in a God, how would I want to live? Well, I'd want to be moral. I'd want to do well towards my fellow human beings and so forth. And so, again, that, that's, a, that's a perspective that, that some might have. And so the Buddha is saying, be really wary about ideas and views that you can't really ground clearly in experience. And so there's a kind of rejection of a lot of the metaphysical thinking of the time and a way of really uh, saying, be light with the views that you do have. Watch out for them. Um, ground them in experience. There's another text where some of you know where the Buddha teaches another wandering a yogi and he says, you know, he's asked, what's the essence of your teaching? And he says, in seeing, only the seeing. In the herd, only the herd. And he goes on, in the thought, in the, you know, goes in through all the senses and says, basically, ground everything in the senses. And so, you know, how do we, uh, how do we work with this? How do we take this kind of teaching and uh, make some sense of it? So I wanted to use, and Brian, here we can bring in the, uh, the screen share. I wanted to turn to a, a contemporary model, which gives a way also of understanding this. And this is a model I've used in the past, and it comes from... Uh, comes actually from the, the field of organizational theory, from the work of Chris Argyris, who, who taught, I think, both at uh, MIT and at Harvard Business School. And this is a very, very simple model, uh, which is about the um, relationship, really, of our thinking to uh, experience and to what he calls data. And I'll, I'll be very brief with it. But I find that this image is very, very helpful for uh, practicing with views. And so, according to this model, there is an infinite pool of possible experience, possible data. You know, at any given moment, we can be directing our attention. You know, some of the neuroscientists say we have, may have tens of thousands of data, you know, per second that we can tune into. 
and out of that, and we could, you know, we could even right now, I can, you know, I'm focusing on teaching, but I could, I could focus, I could look out the window and look at that uh, cedar tree and just totally drop my attention to talking. And I could really focus there. I could look at, oh, Kuan Yin. There's an image of Kuan Yin about three feet away. I could look at that. You could, you know, you could be thinking about when you're going to do the laundry, right? There's a lot of possibility here. And, of course, I'm totally focused on my talk, as are you. Then that's how we, you know, but we could, it could be otherwise. So we, out of all the infinite pool of data possible experiences, we select out, on this model, it says we select out a small amount of data. And, we, uh, and then we might, uh, after selecting out data, we might add particular meanings. You might be thinking, well, I'd like to look more at this uh, model of the ladder of inference. Or, you know, or, oh, I should remember that. That could be useful. You know, we add meanings. Maybe we make assumptions. We draw conclusions. We adopt beliefs. I'm not going to so much distinguish between meanings, assumptions, conclusions, and beliefs. Uh, and then we may, based on our beliefs, we may make, we may take actions. And there's, there's a way actually in which uh, our beliefs may also determine what we observe and what we select, right? That there's a feedback loop between our, our views, our, our conclusions, our beliefs, and what we actually observe, what we actually select. And so, pretty simple model. And what's important about the model is that this is a normal way that the mind works. It's not a problem, per se. In other words, we're not trying to only be with direct experience, but rather sometimes we add meanings, we make assumptions, we draw conclusions. What's going to be the suggestion in terms of practice is how much are our assumptions and conclusions and beliefs, number one, grounded in experience, grounded in the data. Of course, that's the basis for what we call um, empirical science, that it's grounded in data. And then what we can start to notice also is how we often go up the ladder we go to assumptions and views in ways that are problematic. And this is part of what the Buddha is pointing to. We may notice that when we become very reactive, we, quote unquote, go up the ladder. That if I'm, you know, when I'm, uh, let's say, judgmental towards someone, I may notice, oh, that person, let's say, didn't come to the meeting on time for the second time in a month. And that may be the data, and I may go way up the ladder and say, that person is irresponsible, that person's not a team player, right, and so forth. My reactivity may drive me to make conclusions which actually go beyond the data. I don't actually know why the person came late. Maybe there was a crisis at home, right? But when we're reactive, we will tend to go up the ladder and get caught in views that go way beyond the data or experience. That's, that's one thing we can notice. We can also notice how we often grasp onto views, that we're up the ladder, and we may notice ourselves getting fixated on the views. You know, uh, this is me, this is my view. 
you know, and again, it may be beyond the, uh, what the, as it were, the, the data or our experience will permit. And so I find this model quite helpful. I, I thought I'd give one example also that I, I think I've given sometimes in the past. This is a story that Sylvia taught, Sylvia Borstein. She was um, going to, uh, maybe, uh, maybe we can take down the uh, screen share now, Brian. Great. And this is a story, but you can think about the ladder of inference. This is a story that Sylvia taught, which illustrates this whole, uh, the whole model. And she was uh, wanting to do a retreat at the San Francisco Zen Center. She calls up uh, the San Francisco Zen Center, gets a person on the switchboard and says, I'd like to do a retreat. And the person says, fine, you want to talk to uh, Steve, but Steve's not in now. Call back uh, this afternoon around, around three. That should work. Sylvia calls back at three, reaches the same person. Person says, oh, I'm really sorry. Uh, Steve walked out, went out, but try tomorrow morning. Uh, Sylvia tries the next morning, uh, reaches the same person, and uh, and uh, says, is Steve there? Oh, you know, Steve's caught in traffic. At which point Sylvia says, I guess I'm not supposed to do this retreat, right? What did she do? She went up the ladder, right? At which point the, uh, the Zen uh, receptionist said, no, I think it just means that Steve isn't available, <laughs> right? And so she is saying, stay down at the bottom of the ladder, right? Watch your tendency to uh, go up the ladder and go to a conclusion that, again, obviously driven by some degree of frustration, but uh, that's what we want to start looking at. And so we want to see how, uh, how views can be connected with reactivity, can be connected with uh, grasping or fixation, sometimes connected with repetition. Um, this, is, uh, this is from the Buddha. What one perceives, one thinks about. What, what, what one thinks about, one complicates with associations, memories, and ideas. And then these notions in assail and overwhelm a person. This is from a Tibetan teacher, Sokni Rinpoche. He says, we believe the first thought, and then the second, and soon the fifth. By the tenth thought, we are sure that the fifth thought is a reality. Is that familiar? That repetition can play a role in, believe, in us getting really, uh, we might say, attached to view. So what I'm going to be saying, the problem isn't going up the ladder. The problem is that we can be fixated up the ladder, driven there by reactivity or by, you know, painful experiences. And we forget about the painful experiences and we get fixated on the view oh, that person is to blame, you know, but we actually don't go down the ladder. So if you think about the ladder, and some of you know may know um, the area of uh, mediation and working skillfully with conflict, a lot of what mediators do is you bring the, um, you bring the conflict down the ladder, so to speak. Initially, a conflict may be about two uh, people or two parties. 
who have just radically different narratives. And what you try to do is bring things back to more direct experience. That's what a skillful mediator does. And it's not easy work. I don't know if, when, I think I've told this story sometimes, but I, I remember once I've done, uh, I've done some mediation myself. And, you know, I, I teach a fair amount on working with conflict skillfully. Um, I remember once uh, being with a couple and they had come to me to work with conflict, but especially work with uh, what is skillful communication in the midst of a conflict. And I asked uh, one person just to say, we talked some, and then I asked one person, can you tell me about what, you know, one of the difficult areas for you? And the person, you know, just talked for 30 seconds and said, you know, this is, this is the problem. And then the other person said, that's not it at all. You know, I don't agree with that. And then we asked the second person, could you describe what you think the issue is or what, you know, where you have some troubles or some contention? And the person uh, said something and the second person said, that's not it at all. I don't agree with that. The upshot of it was it took an hour and a half for them to agree on one sentence that described the issue. Right? That's sometimes necessary. But we, we got there, and so there was movement possible, right? But it took time even to agree, uh, to come down the ladder, as it were, and agree on what the lived experience is, and have some neutral language that could describe it. Imagine doing that with Democrats and Republicans, right? Whoa. Okay, but the thing is, we practice with uh, situations that are simpler, less complex, and actually less, less difficult. And then we get better at doing it with situations which are difficult. Okay, so I could make a lot of applications to uh, the social situation, but I think you get the sense of some of what is problematic about views, that they can be... They, they can go way beyond experience. They can be driven by pain and reactivity. They can be based on fixation and grasping. And they can, of course, I didn't go into so much depth, they can lead to a lot of dukkha, a lot of suffering, a lot of uh, interpersonal difficulties, a lot of social difficulties, a lot of personal difficulties, because I can also, just on my own, and I see this especially, you know, when I teach on the judgmental mind, I can go way up the ladder and get fixated on a view in which I judge myself really harshly. I'm not okay, right? And sometimes that's even a little subterranean. We don't even know we're doing it, but we're actually caught in negative views about ourselves. And so we can do this for ourselves. We can do this relationally. We can do it socially. So finding ways to understand what the views are and practice with them is really crucial. And let's see. So how do we practice with, uh, with views? I'm going to give uh, several different ways that we can practice and invite us to practice like this for your own benefit, for the benefit of our relationships, and for the larger world, for the benefit of society. Because I don't know. We... We, uh, the, you know, what we're exploring here, I think, is really, really central to um, the healing of the country. And I think this is, I'm sure, the 
there are parallel issues in, in virtually every country. But for, for us in the U.S., it's, it's somewhat intense right now. Okay, so first practice is simply being mindful of what one's views are. Notice where you get uh, fixed in your views. Identify them. You can notice them, this in your meditation. You can notice this just in the course of a day. What are my top five views? What are my top ten views? How do they get distinguished into different areas? For example, what are my views about myself? What are my views about my relationships? What are my social or political views? How much do I hold these views with some flexibility? How much do I let these views, uh, how much do these views really dominate me? So the first uh, practice is simply to bring mindfulness to our views. Note it, and when you notice yourself in the, you know, sort of caught by a view, getting really um, identified with a particular view, you can also just see what's it feel like right now? Can I feel underlying emotions? What's it feel like in the body? So that's the first area, very, very central, just to be mindful of what the views are, see how the views are in, uh, you know, are in different categories, the more personal views, the relational views, the social or political views, all sorts of views. And um, you can also maybe notice what triggers your views. Do you go up the ladder? How much do you hold the views um, in a non-rigid way? Again, the purpose isn't to get rid of views, but it's to hold views much less tightly and to have them as much as possible be grounded in, in experience. So a second, um, a second area, uh, this is one I mentioned last time, is noticing when there's a charge around views, and this is particularly in a relational context, but it could be when you're on your own. Notice when there's a charge around other people's views, and you have tendency to uh, criticize them or, you know, the metaphor I used last week was in a sense when you notice a difference in views with someone else or some other group, you go to war. And how much can you rather uh, take difference of views as a starting point for inquiry? They mentioned how uh, practices like this came out of some of my own experiences being part of a group where we were, you know, really well-minded people and we were finding that we were, uh, you know, as we hung out with each other, this was uh, uh, a group where people were, um, everyone was involved in some way with the area of philosophy. I mentioned how uh, for seven years I worked in universities uh, as a philosophy teacher. And I was invited to an innovative program. I was, I think I was one of the younger teachers called Revisioning Philosophy. And everyone's really excited, really innovative people. 
But when we got there and we started having differences, people seemed at times just as fixated, argumentative, and even nasty, that person's views are as everyone else. And so I was uh, very excited when one of the people in the program named Robert McDermott, who was uh, later president at CIIS in California, in San Francisco, he said, can you take a noticing of the difference of views, not as a starting point for war, but as a starting point for inquiry? And you can ask questions like, why is there such a charge here? Is there something in my past that makes me have such a charge with this view? Is there something I might learn with this from this view? You know, um, is my view really based on knowledge? You know, and you could go on like that. Uh, you can ask different questions. Uh, in other contexts, I've sometimes invited people to, um, you know, where there's someone close to you with different views, write a love poem to someone with different views. That could be a practice you could do, you know, just to, just to see what's there. Um, you know, something that's also very, very interesting that we do sometimes in our wise speech retreats. Uh, if you have another person you, uh, who can uh, work with you, you can role play being the person uh, with the views with whom you disagree. It's very, very interesting to do that. It really, it really leads to uh, a third practice, which is really listening deeply with empathy to the other person. What matters for the other person? You know, what is significant for the other person? Can I listen carefully with interest? You know, can I have a sense, even though I disagree with the person's views, that there is an important value connected with the view? Can I listen for that? Yeah, I mentioned the example last time of being part of a retreat at Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico, where we had an interfaith retreat and we were all basically opposed to the production of nuclear weapons, but we were permitted to go into the cafeteria and have lunch every day for five days with the scientists and technicians. And I and many others, we wanted just to listen to what their views were. And they came out pretty quickly. People talked especially about security and we could have a sense of listening empathically to people with different views, you know? And that is a very, very crucial practice to, to listen for what is beneath the surface, listen for the deeper value uh, of the person. So maybe I'll stop with those three practices and uh, name them again. First, be mindful of your views. Notice the top five or the top ten. Write them down. Study them when they come up. Notice if they're emotions. Notice if there's reactivity connected with them. Study your own experience when those views are there. This is a more inner practice. Very, very crucial. Second is you can do a certain kind of inquiry when you notice a difference of views with others. What's going on with me? when I have this difference of views. And sometimes you can even do it in the moment when you get, get good at this practice. And maybe next time I'll bring in, some of you know, there's a very helpful practice of inquiry into views, which has been developed by Byron Katie. How many of you know Byron Katie's work? Some, yeah. And I think I'll bring that in next time because that can be very, very helpful 
for going more deeply. So there's inner work we do with uh, when views come up, uh, mindfulness, and then a certain asking of questions. Why is there so much of a charge? Is there something in my history? Can I learn someone, something from this person or this view? And then thirdly, this is more relational and could be also be brought into the social realm, seeing if we can listen carefully, listen beneath the surface, bring empathy, listen for what matters to the other person, have some flexibility for in, a, in our listening. Okay, so let me stop there and you know, again invite people to work in the next period of time with one or more of those three practices. So let me just invite people now just to take a few moments to sit quietly and reflect on what may have been helpful or important to you. See if any questions arise as well. Requests for clarification and so forth. Great, so let's come back together. Let's come back together and um, can have a time of discussion. We have a nice chunk of time. And so um, in a moment I'll ask Brian to give some clarification, but we can, we can um, join in the conversation in one of three ways. <clears throat> one is by uh, using the raised hands function, which Brian will explain in a moment. Many of you know that from previous time on Zoom. The second is to actually physically raise your hand and if, if the raise hand function is too complicated and Brian should be able to recognize you. We can, he has a way of seeing actually 50 people at a time. Uh, I'm just looking at 25 right now. Um, and the third way is if you want to, to write a uh, comment or question in the chat function and again Brian would, would get to that. And so just really open to any request for clarification, question, um, sharing of some experience. Uh, and Brian, do you want to add to that? Um, I think you covered everything. Um, yeah, you know, once again, if, if you struggle with the finding the raise hand button, uh, don't worry about it too much. You can just raise your hand on screen. Yeah, and the raise hand function, should we say, you go to participants and you click on participants it opens it up and then you find your name and there's an option um, of raised hand and that'll put you in a queue. You know, that's what, that's what we often do, especially in larger groups. Great, so, and Brian, you can help me with, to, uh, with the chat or with uh, people yeah, who got a, Okay. Uh, I've got a couple of questions in the chat and I see two hands raised. Two raised hands, great. 
So why don't we alternate um, between the, the chat and the raised hands? Sounds great. Uh, so the first one, um, so subjective beliefs, aka personal truths, like a firm conviction about voter fraud may not always have confirmation in objective reality. Subjective truths seem divisive, religious or political conflict. Objective truths seem unifying, verifiable. How can subjective beliefs be acknowledged as beliefs rather than objective facts? Yeah, um, that's very good. It's making some important distinctions. And it's, you know, <clears throat> it can be confusing for many people because we have uh, ways of speaking now in which the notion of truth uh, seems to have shifted from what it might have been 50 or 100 years ago. And people talk about my truth or, um, like you say, subjective truth. And it's tricky because I think we want to... Um, I think it is important to make a distinction between uh, recognizing what one believes, uh, if uh, recognizing the degree of groundedness in data or experience. I think that's very crucial. And it's important to um, really clarify what the subjective belief is really about. Uh, and I think we have in our common language often a sense that um, almost like anything goes. If I believe it, I'm entitled to my belief, even if there's no groundedness in uh, data or reality or verifiable experience. So I think that's dangerous. And I think it's, it's one of the kind of social cultural manifestations probably over the, of the last hundred years. But... And so I, uh, the groundedness, I think it isn't, well, let me back up. It, we could talk a long time about this. And when I was actually uh, in my 20s and 30s and studying philosophy, we went into these issues all the time. And so there's a lot that could be said, but I think it's really crucial just to say that um, I think the view of a subjective truth that is applying to the... Um, external world or to data, I think is dangerous and problematic and quite common. Yeah. Okay, please. Uh, yeah, should we go to one of the people? I see three with the raised hands. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Lynn, you can go ahead and unmute yourself. Hi, thank you, Donald for your guidance. I don't know how clear my question is here, but I was surprised what came up when we went inside to consider. Yeah. Um, and what actually came up for me was the vulnerability one can feel when their intention and motivation is good to kind of open up. And then there seems to be a, almost a habitual sense or a habitual tendency on the other side to look for that vulnerability and dive in. I was just surprised that that came up. Yeah. Like asking the question, is it safe to, to, to lower my, lower my guard and really come try to come heart to heart? Yeah, no, it's, it's a really great question, you know, and maybe we we'll go more into that next time when we look to, um, 
how we practice with this relationally, I think what you're pointing to is the importance of what we might call the container or the, um, you know, the, the nature of the relationships. Is there, is there, um, is it in a basis of empathy and compassion? And are we, is the other person really wanting mutual understanding or is, or is that absent such that it might be more, the other person might be coming more strategically. You know, I become vulnerable. I say what I believe and the other person just zeroes in and brings up counterexamples, but doesn't really connect with me so fully. So I think what we're pointing to in certain situations that container of um, is really important. Is there a mutual intention to have understanding, empathy, and compassion? When that's not there, and that's not there in so many of the discussions in the country, then if I make myself vulnerable, uh, I uh, might have a good reason not to feel safe. Mm-hmm. Does that get at it some? It does, and I, I think it's like my experience is more personal and I try to apply it say to what I hear on the news yeah and it seems to offer some kind of explanation why often we actually don't come together yeah yeah and you know and we need uh, to come together and have discussions across differences we need a strong container what I'm calling a container we need some kind of guidelines and agreements that give enough safety and there has to be some agreement that our intention is mutual understanding rather than victory. Mm-hmm. So it's not easy, right? But, uh, but I think that's the, that has a long basis in the understanding of what democracy is about. You know, I think of, you know, I lived in New England for a period of time. There were the whole tradition of town meetings, which is so beautiful, which is really, you know, these are your neighbors and you want to understand them. And it's, there's discussion and you try to understand and you try to have the free flow of ideas and views and not just trying to be strategic and win and defeat your enemy and so forth. Yeah. Thanks, Lynn. Okay. Another uh, question from the chat. Uh, This one's kind of just a clarification. Um, Sometimes the word views and beliefs were used in sometimes it seems interchangeably. Is there a difference between those two terms? Um, I think it's a good good question, um, and of course the word view is just a translation from uh, the the words in Pali and Sanskrit. The word in Pali is ditti, and and that actually uh, has more of a connotation, almost of a metaphysical view. And so, and similarly, the word belief is used in all sorts of ways. So I would say for now, they're fairly close unless we need to make uh, distinctions for, for other reasons. But for right now, it would be to, to look at uh, beliefs uh, as similar to views. So see if in yourself there's a way that you find some distinctions. But I think uh, for our purposes, uh, uh, not a clear distinction right now. Looks like okay. is Victoria next? Uh, Laura is next. Oh, Laura, okay, and then Victoria. Okay. Yeah, go ahead, Laura. Hi, thank you for this. Um, I feel like I and many liberals do this kind of examination of our values a lot, but I feel that many conservatives don't. 
and I'm just using the terms liberals and conservatives very broadly here. Yeah. I know there's a lot of variation. But this can weaken one's efforts, and it doesn't feel fair. I do this practice a lot and learn some of it from Thich Nhat Hanh, but I'm not seeing how it can help resolve things right now, respectfully. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's, I think, a very important question. And then this can come up in the... Uh, the larger uh, social realm, it can also come up relationally. Okay, I'm doing, you know, I have a, I'm uh, in a relationship where there are differences of views with someone in my family or extended family or workplace, and I'm doing all this inner work, and the other person is not. Not fair, ah. <laughs> right? Not fair, right? Uh, how many can relate to that situation? Uh, and I think that happens. And um, what's the alternative? <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I think I have yeah, two thoughts there initially. One is that uh, we, uh, of course, can't force other people to do inner work. But we can talk about it and make it more uh, attractive as an option. You know, that's kind of a larger cultural issue if we're talking about liberals and conservatives. A lot of liberals, so-called, don't necessarily look deeply at their views either. And so and I, I don't know that there's uh, uh, clear data on that. I, I don't know of it. So one thing is that no, no matter what happens, it's important uh, for me to do my inner work in terms of um, even being in you know, with one other person who's not doing it, you can talk about it. Maybe the other person's attracted to it, but one can't force that. But doing one's own inner work can make a significant difference, even if the other is not. And maybe in a certain sense, it's, it's uh, not fair. Uh, but um, again, the, the alternative is to not do your inner work, and then it gets worse. <laughs> so... There is such a thing. I, I sometimes talk about it as unilateral disarmament. Something like that. That does have a place. That's my first point. The second point is, and this is, um, I think this is, can be more, maybe more of a way to have more of what uh, Laura was calling fairness. I think it is, uh, it can work, when there are discussions with people across different views, to see if there can be some agreements about how you'll proceed. I think that's very important, especially if it's done a lot or in a structured way. And so you can say, um, you know, can we have the aim of mutual understanding? The other person may or may not have that, but it's much more likely than the, that the person would have that. Can we have agreement that we'll listen to the other and not interrupt, for example? Can we make have certain guidelines for agreements for our discussion, especially if it's in a more formal setting? That can be <clears throat> that can be really really important, and I've I've seen that work in many many contexts which were somewhat dysfunctional. Personally, I've helped bring in guidelines to certain workplaces. Where, which have helped with the uh, functionality of the group and often can, can get at some of what might occur in inner work. So I think attention to what I've been calling the container, the guidelines, the agreements, 
when there are uh, discussions across differences is very, very important. And, and I think a lot of people can agree to that, even if they're not doing you know, inner work and trying to be mindful of their, their views. That's, that's the short response. Thank, thanks, Laura. It's a very good question. Any, any further response, Laura, uh, after what I said? No, but I appreciate you talking about functionality because that's really where I was going with this, not just that it's not fair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there, there, there may be an asymmetry of, you know, one group or one person's attention to what we've been exploring today. But again, there's not much alternative. Uh, you know, think of a family context where, you know, I don't know, you have a disagreement with someone and the other person doesn't want to talk and you do. What do you do? Um, so please, uh, is uh, Victoria next, uh, Brian? Uh, do you want to take one more from the chat? Okay, and then we'll go to Victoria. Okay. So um, sometimes I have the impression that letting go of some of my point of views will lead me to indifference. Yeah, really, really important uh, observation and, and in a way a question. Uh, we're not talking about letting go of views. We're talking about looking into whether we're attached to views, whether we're fixated, whether there's some reactivity connected with it. And a really important difference because we, you know, the Buddha had different views. There's even a part of the Noble Eightfold Path called uh, uh, right view, you know. But it's really, do we hang on to those? Are we attached to them and fixated on them? And you know, maybe another time I'll talk about later Buddhist uh, teaching where uh, you have very interesting discussions where they even said even to be attached to Buddhist views is a big mistake. Very interesting, right? But so it's, so it's the question is about attachment, fixation, am I driven by reactivity, but can I hold views as much as possible knowing that they're somewhat grounded, but they're not the absolute truth, right? And that I hold them a little more lightly. So that's really what's being pointed to. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Victoria, please. Yes, um, I've noticed, um, well, two things, and I'm wondering if you feel that they might be related. Um, one is that it seems increasingly in our society there's a um, an insistence on um, empirical, I'm <laughs> putting that in quotes because it's not really necessarily the case. Um, can, can you say it one more time, Victoria? It's so, I, oh, is the sound bad? Sound is not 100%, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I have a very old computer. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, it's My question has to do with um, the, uh, an increase in our society to rely on so-called empirical um, facts, and um, many of which are based on things like polls and statistics and um, even some of the scientific information that one reads in um, the more popular publications. I'm not talking about peer-reviewed journals by scientists. Um, and yet the very same people who, who insist on these kind of dogmatic beliefs also categorically deny the possibility of any other um, plane, metaphysical plane, spiritual plane, whatever you want to call it. And so 
the the rift seems to get greater and greater. It's not just about things like politics anymore. It's about um, fundamental core beliefs about the existence of self. And correlated with that um, is somehow an increasing um, disconnect in terms of real dialogue. It's just people are only hearing their own voices and they're not yeah. listening anymore. There's an inability to listen. Yeah, yeah, thank you, Victoria. Yeah, really pointing to uh, different expressions of um, the issues on a social level. And yeah, I would, uh, I would agree that sometimes people can, I don't know, get fixated on what they think is empirical data, but not in the spirit of dialogue. I mean, the, the spirit of science is certainly one of dialogue and looking for uh, you know what sometimes is called the truth or what is what is really valid and so there's a, a certain degree of openness a valuing of dialogue and a valuing of uh, looking deeply what sometimes is called uh, critical thinking you know as, as it's sometimes taught in the schools and and that can sometimes be lacking people can almost like uh, weaponize facts and not have that spirit of dialogue but I think if there's a spirit, a true spirit of dialogue, I would be fairly uh, comfortable, and we can, you know, just hash it out. But again, uh, often, you know, if we think of the, um, you know, if we think of the uh, ladder of inference, uh, we can. If remember, I mentioned that you can have uh, beliefs that are at the top of the uh, ladder of inference, and those, to some extent select out the data, right? So there's this uh, feedback loop where at times my belief means that I notice one thing and I don't notice another. That's where dialogue would be important. Like, you know, in terms of something like foreign policy, uh, you know, we notice, we notice the, uh, as it were, the crimes of our opponents, but we don't notice the crimes of our friends. <laughs> Right, and the newspapers may even reflect that. Right, that's that's how sometimes the data gets warped by uh, our upper level views or beliefs, and so and that can happen in all sorts of ways. So, again, uh, there needs to be a spirit of dialogue and of uh, communication, of empathy, and I think then those things can get get worked out. But yeah, people can. People can choose and weaponize even so-called facts, but it means that they're generally ignoring other facts, right? And that that can happen. Uh, you know, I remember there's uh, maybe I'll close with this. There's a line from an old uh, Bob Dylan song where he says, uh, "You need to get your facts when someone challenges your imagination," <laughs> right? I mean, he's he's being. Uh, I'm not, he's not suggesting that as a good thing, but it's just noticing that we do that sometimes. Someone challenges our deeper values, and we uh, then, then we then we have recourse to facts, so we so we can defend our deeper views. So again, uh, I think what's being invited, and we can maybe go back to our practices. Can we be mindful of our views, investigate them, see whether there's uh, reactivity? You know, see why we have certain views, 
Can we do inquiry when we notice differences of views? And then can we, uh, and the third practice was to bring a spirit of listening and empathy and compassion to those with other views, listening beneath the surface for what might be there. So again, I think, uh, you know, a lot of the later questions really pointed to the need for having a whole different approach and that we need, you know, we need ground rules for healthy communication, basically, and healthy dialogue across views. If we don't have those ground rules, it'll probably look more like war. And so I, I would put a lot of attention to there. Put attention there in your organizations, among your friends. And, you know, then if enough of us do that, we'll get familiar with it. We can bring it out into a larger world. So, again, my invitation is to uh, do this practice. And we'll come back and continue to explore this whole area of experience. And there, there are a lot of other tools and perspectives I can bring in further. So let me just end again, maybe invite us to take a moment to reflect on how you might take this further if you're interested. What are your next steps? What are your intentions for continuing to look at, at views? Great, thank you. And how many would actually like to look at views further in your own experience? How many have the intention to continue? That's great. Okay, so dedication of merit at the end. We remember that we practice for ourselves, but also for others. It's really clear in the area of practicing with views. And may our practice be a benefit to us, to those in our circles, and then beyond our own circles, into the larger world and cosmos for the benefit of all beings, which includes us. So thanks again, everyone. And we can do our do a, what's now my ritual at the end. We can say goodbye. And if you want to uh, unmute and stay on, you can do that. Bye-bye, okay, everyone. Till next time. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Donald. A pleasure. Wish we were all in the same physical space. Hopefully that can happen soon. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye, -bye. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.